On this episode of the Three Beers, Two Guys, One Movie podcast, we welcome our new co-host, Mr. Rod Budman, and we begin our journey through Netflix with an in-depth discussion of Hell or High Water. So, here we go! Podcast. Uh, I am Matthew Scott, and I'm joined by our new co-host and hopefully longtime partner, Mr. Rod Budman. Today we will be, we will be reviewing Hell or High Water, a uh, you know critically acclaimed film that's available on Netflix right now. Um, like every show, um, I'm going to be drinking a little beer and maybe talk about a little beer for a little bit, and then we'll jump right into the movie. Mr. Rod Budman, how are you doing today, though? Uh, I'm doing great. Um... Really, really, really honored to be a, be a guest. Um, looking forward to. Well, you're not a guest. You're now officially a part of the Three Beers, Two Guys, One Movie family. I mean, we had a little divorce that happened, but we aspire to have a host, a co-host that lasts longer to than just one show this time. So, otherwise, it get a little too ridiculous. Well, well, I, I'm excited to be here. Okay. Um, yeah. All right, so we should say, just to start off, this movie was recommended by our new co-host, Mr. Rod Budman. He's very, very, has incredible taste in movies. But uh, before we get started, I like to do, with uh, before each movie, I like to drink a little bit of beer. But obviously, I try to tie the beers into the movie. So, Hell or High Water is what Wikipedia called a neo-Western. And so, I went out and found this beer called Hoppy Kaye. It's by Lone Rider Brewery, and um, it's got like this little cowboy on it. I don't know if you can see that, Rod. Can you see that? Oh, wow. It's a little gunslinger, obviously. I don't know who he's pointing at. We don't know if he's like holding up a bank like in the movie or if he's just, you know, trying to do a hate crime or something. But um, he's dressed in cowboy attire, and he could be robbing a movie for, I mean, robbing a bank for all we know, but, you know. Anyways, it ties into the movie because, like I said, the movie is a neo-Western about two guys that need to rob a bank, rob some banks to pay off their debts. And, um, you know, it's a decent beer. It's a, it's like, I think it's got like 6.5% alcohol. It's an IPA. It doesn't taste anything ridiculous or anything new or interesting. But if you see it around, you might as well just give it a try because... I mean, I don't know about you, but I like trying stuff that has interesting artwork on the cans. I'm kind of a sucker for the artwork or the cheesy nicknames. I mean, like when you stroll around the beer aisle, Robert, I mean, uh, Rod, do you, uh, are you really interested in the artwork or are you just always grabbing what you're used to? Um, I am generally a sucker 
for the uh, the graphics for sure. Like just for the try, like I always just like to try it. I don't always like, I, there's no way like, oh my God, I'm drinking it because of the graphics, but I will go, hey, I might want to try something new. I will choose something because they caught my attention way more than just because, you know, I don't know, it just looks plain and simple. Like, I like the fact that they put some effort into it. They're trying to get my attention. It makes me feel special or something. It's yeah, catered just like, to me. Hey, Matthew, we know you're watching <laughs> Hell or High Water this week. We actually designed this little Jeff Bridges version, uh, double wheel and the pistols. Why don't you drink me? He looks like he's a robot, though. Like maybe it's more for Westworld than it is for this movie. But it's called Ales for Outlaws, which I think ties in perfectly well for um, you know this movie, where at least two people fancy themselves as outlaws. Um, Absolutely. Where's uh where where's that brewery located? Um, Raleigh, North Carolina. So not too far from your neck of the woods. I think it was. Uh, I think it was. I think I read a little bit about it. It was founded in like 2009, 2010. It's pretty wild that in just like a short 10 years, some of these little microbreweries have become pretty highly distributed all over the country type places. I mean, when we were just in college or whatever, or what was it like? What's it called? Like Westbrook? You remember Westbrook? Uh, Westbrook out of I think Brooklyn. No, Westbrook out of Charleston. Oh, the Westbrook even... that had the uh, the white Thai chai. Yeah, the they've also got something called like Mexican cake or something like that. In That's what, like incredible. Ashley. Yeah, I never yeah. went to the brewery. I don't even know if I even drank it when I was there. But now it's like it seems like it's a very, very, very big. I don't say big deal, but I remember just people. I remember people talking about it, and I was like, "Oh, that Westbrook, the one that I never even gave a shit about in school." It's kind of weird that it was <laughs> that sort of yeah. sort of critical acclaim. Actually, I did, it, it's in Mount Pleasant because I remember on the way to um, Sullivan's Island, you'd pass the brewery on the left, but it was like pretty far out there uh, near that school that all the townies went to, like Waccamaw or whatever. <laughs> yeah, all the all the locals that seemed to just be too cool for school, but also who no one wanted to talk to. Um, Speaking of... Um, that, that's someone I think we may want to um, look for for suggestions down the road, maybe make a guest appearance. But Mr. Oh, uh, Manny Fresh. Mr. Preston Bernstein? Who, who I believe reviewed The Graduate years past. With yeah. Johnson. <laughs> um, I think they I had mean, a... Not only is he a movie expert, but he's also sort of a, what do you want to say, um, calligrapher, or he knows maps. He knows how to take Hungry Neck to the right theaters. <laughs> <laughs> Don't forget to turn left on the <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, that's just a silly <laughs> little anecdote, but still, um, he does know his way around Charleston. He knows his knows his way around the movie section, too. <laughs> yeah, he, he certainly does. Um, graduate's never been the same for me since. <laughs> that's for sure. Um, all right, so let's um, let's go on straight to the movie here. Um it was directed by a Mr. David McKenzie. I don't, I mean, I'm sure he's a very talented person and great at his, at his craft, but I didn't, I looked up what he's done, what he's written, what he's directed, and I didn't really know exactly who he was, so I don't really have much to say about him. Um, it was written by this dude named Taylor Sheridan, who was kind of like a struggling actor for a really long time, then got a part on Sons of Anarchy, 
and became kind of at least decently known, I guess, because that show was moderate of, you know, big success, moderate success, however you want to put it. And uh, then started writing his own stuff and got kind of launched a new career, obviously, became really, really big and well acclaimed and started writing movies that had tons of critical success and also monetary success. So, um, like I said, this movie was called by Wikipedia, a neo-Western heist film. It stars, let's see, Chris Chris Pine is Toby Howard. And then, uh, shit, I forgot, I didn't even write down his older brother's name, but his older brother's name is Tanner Howard. I forgot to write who the actor was. It's then, Ben Foster. Ben Foster, I'm sorry. He's and a, then, go ahead. He's a, typically a villain, typically cast as a villain. You may know him from 310 to Yuma with Christian Bale. He plays uh, one of the outlaw, outlaw uh, you know, the prisoner they're trying to get back. Christian Bale's trying to get back to, to Yuma. He's he's in that in that gang, but um, yeah. And and then obviously stars Mr. Jeff Bridges, who I think everyone I don't think anyone out there dislikes Jeff Bridges. I don't think there's no way you can actually dislike him. He's just always cool. He's always funny. There's nothing any way remotely dislike dislikable about him. Um, and he's obviously sort of this aging Texas Ranger who's just on the last weeks of his tenure there and kind of waiting for retirement. But I think he, you can tell he's not wanting to retire because he knows he's not someone suited to a boring life. He likes the action a bit, but I think he's getting a little too old for this shit in some ways too. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, that's, that's what's great about this movie though. And um, is that even though it's great and complex in terms of how the characters interact with each other and the relationships, it's also so incredibly simple because there's really only three or four characters you have to know and the narrative just revolves around them and no one else is too terribly important. So just those three, I think are really, um, Jeff Bridges has a partner. I forget his name. Um, he's sort of a half Indian, half Amer or half native American, half, American guy that Jeff Bridges sort of ribs on, but in a loving fashion. But I don't even know if he's even that important, other just to, other than kind of adds a bit of a foil to Jeff Bridges' character. But that's really about it. I, I mean, he didn't really have too much to say and too much to do. He has a, you know, what what do you think? Do you think he was? I I don't think his, I think his role really developed um, Jeff Bridges' role. Yeah more because in the end it shows how much because the entire time he's you know making stabs at him because he's uh you know indian and at one point you know the actor's name is um gil birmingham he even he he makes a stab back you know i'm actually half uh, me uh mexican and he goes <laughs> oh well i'm i'm not i'm not through with you know the indian jokes we'll get there later yeah, I think his character's name is Alberto. I think it just came back. Alberto. But yeah, yeah. But yeah, Jeff Bridges constantly ribs him for being Native American. And there is a little moment where he makes fun from being Mexican, too, and talks about soccer, even though, you know, soccer's an international game now. It's not strictly for <laughs> not strictly for Mexicans or Europeans. I think the uh, American audiences are starting to embrace it. <laughs> yes, yes. Okay, so now we've got we've established a little bit of plot. The uh, the two brothers have to are going on this sort of uh, couple day heist plan where they go around stealing money from some small town banks because they have to. They're 
I guess their family property belonged to their mom, but I think it belonged. It's like a generational thing, a generational ranch that's been passed down throughout their family for years and years and years and years and generations or whatever is about to be reclaimed or repossessed by the bank because they're failing on some reverse mortgage that they can't pay back. Um, I mean, that's a good motivation that to, I guess, steal money. Uh, you know, there's probably there probably were some better ways to go about doing it, but hell, it wouldn't have been as much fun of a movie if they did. Um, do you buy the premise, Rod? Do you think that was like you didn't question it? No, criti no criticism of it. Do you think that made sense? No, no criticism of it whatsoever. I think it's very. I mean, it's a very believable story. Um, it's one of those movies that I really enjoy because you kind of are pulling for the the bad guys, and in a sense, the whole, the whole. Um, basically, I mean, throughout the movie, you see scenes where. Like people at the uh, diner, you know, the old men who've seen them eating at the diner before they rob it. Yeah. And, you know, the rangers come in and they go, you know, you guys been here long? And they go, been here long enough. They <laughs> get robbed. Been robbing me for 30 years. So you start to see a lot of like, everyone's kind of pulling for the two. Yeah, I, well, I think it's like, we'll, we'll get it. I was just about to bring up what, what type of town and what type of place this whole thing sets in, but you're you're right in, in that sense in that um, it's almost like everyone's living a hard life in this small community. No one's like making bank. No one's has a fortune. There's no rich people that are sort of oppressing. It's just like everyone sort of has this communal empathy for each other. So when somebody... Um, <laughs> So when someone steps out and robs the bank, it's almost like I don't think they there's no grievances. There's no care. Uh, I mean, someone's just trying to make a living in some sense because they'd all know it's hard to make a living in that sort of community. So. Um, <laughs> all right. So the film starts out before we even know who these characters are. Um, it starts out with um, what it starts out with that first ro robbery. So it's sort of like in medias reus a bit. It starts out in the middle of things. We don't know who the characters are. We don't know what the story is. All we do is we get this little opening cut scene, like this opening tracking scene that shows the rural. It's a very, very rural, small community, right? Everything's really bland. Everything's really white. Everything's a little really dusty. There's no big buildings. You could clearly see it's a small town. And then these two brothers pull up in like a pink Camaro. Kind of look like something that like my sister used to play with, like in her Barbie Barbie collection or something like that. But anyways, they pull up in this like pink Camaro to this bank and they rob the first bank and then they rob a second bank. But that's when we get sort of, you know, we, we start off in the action. Um, did you did you see from the moment those first those first bank robberies? Did you think, oh, these guys know what they're doing? Or could you tell immediately by some of that stuff that these some of one guy was nervous, one guy was professional, one guy or what do you think? How could what do you think were some of the things that sort of happened and that first 20 minutes that sort of showed who those characters were without necessarily saying who they were. Because I've got just a few little ideas or whatever, but you go ahead if, if you want. Okay. So Chris Pine, um, Toby, and, uh, you know, you can think of Toby like Toby McGuire. Like Toby, <laughs> Toby is like the wholesome brother. And you can tell that he's like got to do, do this robbery. You don't yeah. really know why yet. But he's also really nervous and he's but he's serious about it. Whereas Tanner, you can tell, is a little he's a little loose. 
yeah. he's probably done something similar before. And he's kind of, I feel like he's kind of running the show. Well, you can tell when they, oh, sorry, did you get, you can tell when they first, when they, all right, so the movie, they, the movie starts out with two robberies, whatever. So in the first one, um, you can tell right after they do it that Tanner has done this before. Like he's the driver, he's remaining cool and calm. He's also like, he's speeding, but he's not speeding. He's not worried about being caught. He sort of knows exactly what he's doing. I wouldn't say he's like, a professional but you can tell he's confident in the sense that he's done this before but you can also tell that he's enjoying like the adrenaline rush of doing it like this is sort of tanner's this is his drug this is what he loves doing like he's kind of addicted to just this crazy adrenaline rush high of robin uh robin makes where the, where the other brother toby is like very very worried he's like dude slow down slow down slow, 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 slow down I, I'm, I'm scared kind of thing and then in the next robbery the second one this is what i was i was kind of like I remember watching it and being like, well, what a dumb fucking mistake. But when he, he frisks, there's one guy in the bank, like they, I think they make an effort to try to obviously get there early to rob the bank. So there's no customers that they had to deal with. Cause that kind of becomes their, that, that actually becomes a big deal in the end or whatever. But um, so there's just one old dude in the bank and what Tanner makes sure to, to, see if he has a gun and then toby frisks him and finds it and then he just puts it right next to the old dude's hands <laughs> and so he can clearly use it when they're running away and i was like when he did that when he just put it right on the counter right next to the dude i was like oh my god what a dumb fucking idiot and that kind of they got lucky they got away with that but still that dude was shooting at them and could have easily killed them or busted them or injured them or something you don't know talk about but yeah. it's still it still just illustrated that one guy kind of knew what to look for, how to act and how to behave and was kind of, I won't say like cool under the pressure, but had done this before. And one guy just didn't. And that sort of just set it up. It just, I feel like without saying much, they revealed enough about those characters to win when they actually did kind of say what was going on. You weren't surprised. You could look back in that, that first 20 minutes and go, oh yeah, that makes sense. You go, this is, that's how they were behaving. So it makes sense to sort of, understand what they were when they were talking about it yeah because i think it's after the third robbery that um he's like man i don't know how you managed to stay out of jail for for a year that's when you know they finally break it it's not until after that third robbery i think what do you mean break would you break like to actually tell you that he spent 10 years oh yeah 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 oh Let's just let's just go back after that second robbery or whatever because this is something I did want to bring up and something where I, I was sort of a bit um, I was you know wanting to find a criticism with the film or whatever but they actually played it off really well because I was like oh what are they gonna do with those getaway cars they're not burning them they're not abandoning them these guys are fucking idiots but then right when they get done with those the cars or whatever I mean when they get done with the robberies. You see that they've dug this massive, massive hole in their ranch with like the tractors or whatever, and then they drive the cars right into the pit and then bury them. So there's they they did cover all their bases as far as leaving no evidence behind. I thought like they did it in sort of creative ways. Usually in like these heist films, you know, they like set them on fire or burn them. They did that in a town, and I think they did that in heat. I think they did that in heat. I don't know. I can't remember. But you know, they they found a different way to sort of destroy the evidence. So that's what's all I was getting at. I thought it was like kind of a cool little new concept to it, a new little twist. And then also to go back on, you know, the plot believability factor, which is always huge for me. They are and to your point about Tanner being um experienced, they know specifically to ask for, you know. 
unmarked twenties and fifties, no large bills, and they're not real. They're not. They're still in forty thousand dollars total. That's I think that's goal. all they wanted. Yeah, that was another thing because I, so, I mean, they're not really raising like huge alarm bells. They're not going to have the FBI after them because it's yeah. not that much money. Yeah, it's like it's like Point Break. They like get in and get out after two minutes. I think that's the whole deal in Point Break is they know exactly not to get greedy and don't go for the safe. They always just go for the tellers, give us the petty cash, and then get out and go. And that way, they like they. I don't think in this film they they sort of track police response time or whatever. Like it's not that sophisticated, but they clearly know that the more time you spend in the damn bank, the more time it gives the police to get there and catch you. So they just get in and get out. It's kind of a smart operation. Um, and, you know, relatively safe until unless you're coming across somebody with a conceal and carry gun that might want to shoot at you. But um, what was I going to get at? Um, <laughs> but so after I want to talk about how they uh, how they launder the money, because this is this was actually pretty new. And I felt like it was kind of like a really, really smart way to do it. Something I'd never thought of. Not that I'm sitting back thinking about laundering tons of money or whatever. But then they go to the casino and they basically just take all of their stolen cash and turn it into chips and sit there for like two hours, kind of play just a little bit of games or whatever, and then cash out again. Maybe that I don't know how much they spent or whatever, or they could have won stuff too. But basically, they exchange the stolen bills for fresh for a fresh check or or fresh cash. You know, it it was they took the stolen bills and they 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 found a way to get rid of that evidence too. Now, Ron Budman has never personally done this, <laughs> but he has heard that that probably is the most common way money is laundered. <laughs> um, well, I've never seen, I mean, I've like watched The Wire a lot and Breaking Bad. Lots of money is wired. You mean laundered? I mean laundered. Yeah. I mean, are you like basing this off of some like crime documentaries you've watched or yes. like some like books yes. you've read? Yes. I mean, that's a way to make money clean. Yeah. Obviously, you can't go in with a million dollars, but I mean, think about it. You go to the casino with $10,000. Yeah, that was the one question I had. I wonder what the limit is before it gets a little suspicious that you're trying to launder cash. Well, but, the thing is, you can, I mean, you can go in, you can go to the cage, you can buy $2,000 at this cage right here. Then you can go about $2,000 over here, then get $2,000 over there. Let's just say you get to 10 grand and, you know, you walk around, have a couple of those free beers, um, <laughs> maybe play one hand or something. Then you go and you, you literally what they do is they get a check written directly to the bank. But it doesn't get reportable where you like you have to pay taxes until it's over a certain amount. I thought it was five thousand dollars. But at the same time, I like I still um, I guess it really doesn't matter, but it could. For the sake of this movie, though, they um, they had a plan as far as making the money once they got the forty grand to pay off the loan or whatever. So I'm sure they could handle the taxes afterwards. But I guess it still makes it a little bit suspicious if you get like a ten grand check from the bank. The well, only it, it it legitimizes it, and that amounts five thousand dollars. Yeah. The only thing I uh, well, I'll just sort of backtrack on this before we get back to the plot. Where um, I was like, because we were talking about the overall movie concept and if the uh, the motivations were right or, or believable or not. Instead of robbing banks, I feel like since 
we're going to, I'm going to just jump ahead here for just a second because I think um, we've gotten to this point, but the uh, Chris Bynes character says that they've found oil on his, the ranch's property or whatever, and that that's why they're doing it. I mean, I think they wouldn't care in a sense if, uh, if the property got foreclosed, if they didn't find oil and they didn't know it was actually worth a shit ton of money. But since it is worth a lot of money, he realizes he can like set up his kids and his family, his ex-wife or whatever for life or whatever, because they found a ton of oil that it's sort of a desperate situation to try and keep this land. But instead of robbing banks, I feel like you could find some, you could easily find some type of short-term loan for $40,000. And then when, if you had proof of concept or proof that you had a ton of oil sitting under your property, rather than just risking your whole you know, well-being and uh, future by robbing all these banks. Like you could go up to somebody, even just another bank, and they'd probably give you a loan for, you know, 40 grand. It might be a high interest, pay it back immediately type of thing. But I feel well, I like. Think, I think that, I think it's, I think differently. I think because, I mean, they're in such a dire situation already with that bank. I mean, they're at the point of where that house has been foreclosed on and has liens on. So no one else is going to give you a loan for even a thousand dollars. Yeah. I mean, they're, I mean, their credit probably also, sucks. Oh, no, 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 no. But I mean, their credit probably sucks, but there's still a ton of value and leverage in the fact that if he literally can prove that there's tons of oil on the property or whatever, you don't even have to go to a bank. You could just find like, I mean, they, they have an attorney who seems like he's at least semi well-connected or professional or whatever. I'm sure you could connect with some, you know, cash rich investor that would be like, yeah, dude, I'll give you 40 grand. Well, that, for that's the whole thing. And even that's another, this is another part of the movie that I think like kind of makes you, you know, feel like they're Robin Hood, like, like pull for him is I think it's the bank employee when he, when they give him that first check from the casino and he goes, he says, and to see you boys pay the back, but, the bank back with their own money if that ain't yeah. i don't know what it is <laughs> and then he goes on to say you know they they squeezed your mom you know who's passed away at some point at the beginning of the movie they squeezed your mom on a reverse mortgage which is they give you 25 percent of the equity in your home and then you basically get to live out in the home and then when you pass away you either your your you know, her, her sons can pay that amount or the house just goes to the bank. So then the bank was going to make all that money from the oil. Yeah, I see that I, that is the one thing that was like kind of confusing is I guess the bank knew, like clearly the bank knew that there was oil on, on the property. And then they almost I think that's why the brothers felt like they wanted sort of revenge on the bank is because they set up their mom with this the bank did set up their mom with this huge high interest reverse mortgage. Apparently I, I, I read just a little bit about it. I didn't really like, I don't really understand. I mean, like I'm not a finance person or whatever. Um, but basically it is what you said. Like they got, you, you can take out equity in the home and then like, you don't even have to pay. I mean, you have to pay it back eventually, but there isn't like a monthly payment plan. It's basically like, but the interest still accumulates monthly. So what can happen is over time, if the mom did what did had no source of income because she wasn't taking any of that oil or didn't have enough money to do whatever, is that like all that interest was accumulating while she was just sort of sitting there. And eventually what can happen is like, let's say you got 25 grand for the ranch or whatever. They said that the, 
the the interest can actually build up to being more than the actual value of the house. So it's like you got a, you got a quarter, you got like a loan for a quarter of the value of your home, and if you just sat there and never paid it back after years or whatever, eventually they can rep repossess it and say that you owe four times as much. Like it's it's kind of like a shitty deal all around. Unless you have a plan to get the cash back immediately. If you don't, then you, it sounds like a very, very terrible. It sounds like the bank took advantage of an old lady who just wanted to kind of like pay off some medical bills and she had no way of getting the money back. Yes. But they wanted the property. So, yeah, it does make sense like that they wanted revenge on the bank because the, the bank clearly, I think they feel that the bank clearly took advantage of sort of a helpless, you know, old woman that was struggling financially and also struggling who didn't have anybody sort of take care of her both like physically and in terms of like helping her with her finances or whatever. So it does make sense that they want revenge on them. But it also, at the time I was thinking, I feel like there'd be a, a less violent way of doing it, but it would make a shittier movie. So it wouldn't even make a movie. So now, do, <laughs> we just... need to, do we need to separate their, their wants? Do, does, does the brother Tanner even, um, like, does he take half of the money and he just does whatever he wants with it? Or is he basically just giving all the money for the brother? What's to I'd see, I, I don't even know. His his motivations are a bit mixed just because, like we said earlier, he's he sort of is in it for the thrill almost. I think he wants to do it to help his brother more than he does. He wants to help his, even though the mom's dead. I think he wants to do it to help his brother and his family. But he also, I don't think he like really is in it for the money, so to speak. I think in his heart or in his brain, he knows that he's going back to jail eventually. So it might as well be now sort of thing. Like he knows he's always going to be sort of a, a renegade or an outlaw, so to speak. And so here's just the next journey, <laughs> the next quest. And then he's going to jail. I don't, I don't, I don't think he's. Yeah, I mean, I think he's doing it to help out his brother because he knows he could. his brother couldn't do it without him. His brother's probably a little too timid, a little too meek, even though he's smarter. He doesn't have that sort of outlaw spirit, you know? Mm -hmm. And he's never done it before. So he goes and he helps his brother rob these banks to get the uh, the family ranch secured. And I think he knows during that time. That I, I, I won't say knows, but I think he's he's content with the fact that if he gets caught, he knows he's doing it instead of selfish reasons like he's done in the past. He's doing it for good reasons, so I think he can live with that. Yeah, if that makes sense. Yeah, he's just kind of living for the next day, really. I mean, yeah, he he's you know he does at the casino take uh, take advantage of some of the finer things in life, that, <laughs> you know. Well, it, yeah, the second trip to the casino, I thought that was like a very, very weird scene where he does, uh, he does like hit on the, uh, the what do you want to say, like hotel attendant or whatever. Um, he is, he's, he's in more for cheap, not cheap thrills, but you know, um, instant gratification rather than long term sort of gratification, if that makes sense. But um, yeah, I, that that is a pickup line. I'm gonna have to write <laughs> down the. Uh, when you're in your last days in nursing home, you, you'll think about me and giggle. <laughs> I thought that one was pretty good. Yeah, I, it's, it sounded like he'd said that one plenty of times and it worked. So he's pretty confident that it would deliver the goods. Uh, <laughs> all right. So let's let's uh, track back a little bit. Let's, let's talk about Jeff Bridges and the cop. I mean, his brother, I mean, not his brother, his um, partner, Alberto. So they get involved, like you like you said earlier, that um 
the two brothers aren't stealing, like we said, very large bill, uh, very large amounts of money. So the FBI doesn't care about it. And um, local police can't handle it because it's, I, I don't know. So they get these two Texas Rangers involved. And um, Jeff Bridges is on the verge of retirement. Maybe, I think he's like, they said maybe like in the next week or two weeks or something like that. So this is going to be like his one last thrill on the job. And um I mean, he clearly, what, what did you think about their dynamic? We kind of talked about it a little bit. Um, or did you think, like, did you think they were even, like, outsmarting them? Or did you find, like, anything interesting or funny or, in, like, anything clever with the way they were going about getting information? Or did you find that they were sort of standard cops? Um, I think that, you know, they, 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 they did a good job of playing it out as if he was, like, Obviously, a Texas Ranger who was a real gumshoe and could just walk <laughs> in and like put his finger on the ground and be like, "Yep, these boys aren't going for too much money." You know, this must be my, my guess is you know him be somewhat, somewhat accurate based on literally like sniffing the ground really quick. Yeah, but at the same time, they kind of made it seem like they were a little bit not senile, but like had been there. They were always a little too slow. They were, just, they were always right behind them. They, they kind of provided the com comedic relief where they were supposed to. Yeah. He, he had this like sort of sense of like false pretense where he was, he knew more than what he was saying, so to speak, you know, like that's like the typical cop thing. Like he's never going to play his full hand to the rest of the people, but he kind of knew, you could tell underneath the surface, he knew what was going on. And he was like, sort of like, had all these, uh, you, know, you know, he didn't get frustrated. He was always cool and calm. And he like, he knew the right questions to ask to sort of get the information that he sort of wanted. Like when that one little, what that, what like young teller or whatever, he was sort of questioning her. And he's like, what kind of car did they drive? And she's like, I'm not good with cars. I'm not good with cars. And so, like, he, like, you could tell, like, he knew how, like, calm her down. He's like, all right, was it a nice car? Was it a okay car? Or was it a real piece of shit, sweetheart? And she's like, real piece of shit. And he goes, all right, now we're, t you know, like, it's like, it was, you could tell he, you could tell this was not his first time on the job, which is clear because he's about to retire or whatever. But it just seemed like, I, I like that they were, like, showing that communication was a very big part of the job rather than just having a brain to sort of, you know, deduce what was going on. Like, in order to get the information you want, you have to communicate in the proper ways with different people to uh, to figure things out. So that's that was just one little thing where, like, it was like a young girl and he clearly kind of made her more comfortable in order to get the information he wanted out of her. But... Um, that was right before we didn't talk about the diner scene, which is it's kind of, I don't know if it's important, but it's kind of important just because it's the one person who probably could um, provide evidence that Chris Pine's character was involved, but she won't because she sort of has a little crush on him, you know, uh, and that so this waitress or whatever she clearly knew um, saw the two brothers together eating and saw the older brother go and have that sort of impromptu uh what do you want to say robbery right across the street at the bank but while the brother was going over there to rob the bank uh she sort of flirted with chris Pine's character and he left her like a 200 hundred dollar tip and i don't think it was anything like 
I don't think he meant anything by it in terms of I want to hook up with this girl, whatever. But it was clearly just sort of uh, I've got some free cash. I and what what do you think? Do you do you think there was like a intimate moment, or do you think it was sort of like a no? I don't think there was an intimate moment at all. Yeah, um, <laughs> well, why I would think he it's more because like he's like this moral. He's supposed to be like the morally, you know, sound guy in the movie. Only reason he's doing it is for his kids. They kind of hint that, you know, he's had like a, maybe like an alcoholic past. I don't know if you caught on to that. I didn't, but, I, got, I got that from like the cop. I don't remember if it, if like, it was really but, like, there, There's two scenes that like you kind of, I think they do a good job because they leave you to kind of just speculate what happened. There's two scenes where Chris Pine's character, like you, like obviously something happened with the wife where he lost custody of the kids. Well, that's true too. Yeah, yeah. So illuminate me on this because I might have missed this. Go ahead. So I think that um, he knows that that lady is uh, a single mother. Um, uh, okay. She makes that aware, and he knows what his wife's going through. So he's just wanting to help her out. Okay. Yeah, um, I didn't get like a, a thing of intimacy. I was just wondering why he had, why he felt the need to sort of give her so much money. And I, I mean, I know they kind of like felt bad, but it almost. It just didn't. I couldn't think of a reason, but I guess you're probably right in that. Like he he doesn't like seeing people struggle. He knows how hard it is to have kids and be alone or whatever. So that probably was. But did they did he talk about with her that he had she had a child or did he or did um, I, yeah she acted like she wanted to go on a date later, and you know that suggested she was single. Yeah. And then also she she did um, a child was mentioned. Okay, I, I guess that was sort of too busy trying to remember where I knew her from, and that was from Eastbound and Down. She's <laughs> April from Eastbound and Down, and I was like, oh my goodness, she's changed a decent amount from that that TV show. But, but no, she definitely had a um, you know she she wanted it to be romantic, and that, and that's another. That's where the real gumshoe of Jeff Bridges' character comes out. Because, <laughs> you know, when he goes and questions her, he goes, where was, where, who, who is the handsome fella that ate here earlier? And she's like, how, I, I didn't say he was handsome. Was like, well, <laughs> you know, how'd you know? He's like, well, if he, if he wasn't handsome, you know, you'd have been running out and just, you know, told me that you just served the people that just robbed the bank. So, uh, you know, he's got a lot of that old, just uh natural born detective in him. Yeah. Well some old like cop intuition that he's probably dealt with some uh <laughs> some ladies before that don't want to get the uh the good looking outlaw in trouble. Yes. All right. So um so after so after we um we do that, I forget so after that scene and um she's an important character just because she is the one person who could identify Chris Pine's character in the lineup. So it uh, not to spoil we there's no reason to say spoilers or anything because if you're watching this or listening to this, you probably watched the movie or don't care about spoilers. But um, he, Chris Pine, eventually gets away with it, and so that's the one person who literally could say say that she, he was directly with the brother that was found, obviously, you know, guilty of it or whatever. So his sort of a the tip and also sort of having empathy with her and sort of connecting with her is kind of what saved his ass in the end. Like, if, you, if he'd been, like, a bitch and been like, hey, sweetheart, I don't want to talk to you, just wrap up this plate and then give me the bill, he could have 
easily gotten you know sent to jail or that woman would have cooperated with jeff bridges or whatever but his sort of just you know uh humane kindness that he's probably born with and that sort of not because he's the guy who like took care of the sick mother or whatever so he's clearly a nice guy and cares about people and wants to help out so if he would have been just a total bitch or a snob or like said something rude about her or whatever just then clearly he would have been going to jail but it's it's almost kind of a nice thing that I guess shows that always treat people right because you never know what type of power they could have over you because this woman had the power to send them to jail and she just didn't want to. Let's uh, where did we go from here? So we've got the two cops and I think they're um, all this first three robberies, they do two in the morning and then that brother does the surprise one that we've kind of talked about. And uh, so that's three. And I think they plan on hitting one more bank to get to their final, um, 40,000 or whatever. The cops don't know what number they're trying to get to, but they do see a pattern that they're only hitting this one bank. It's called like the Midlands, Texas bank or whatever. So Jeff Bridges and his partner start scouting out other locations and they know that, or they, they figure that they're going to try to hit another one or whatever, but that's sort of, they sort of catch on to the idea of like the whole plan. And then they start sort of staking out the other banks or at least one other bank. And then what uh, I'm trying to think of any type of interesting thing that happens between sort of the third and fourth robbery. That's well, sort of worth noting. I mean, the impromptu robbery kind of puts them in a bond because like that's their last like clean car. Like those are their mom's oh, yeah. cars that have been sitting in her garage for years like they're untraceable cars or you know um i think for some reason those cars are untraceable i don't know if they owned like a car like one of them was at least stolen i thought they said they might have been well that that sounds stupid but maybe stolen like a long I think time they ago. had to steal a car because that to do the last robbery so okay. that was, and that like really angered chris pine like with him doing that yeah so they stole that bronco yeah was a badass car i really hated to see it get lit up with bullets and then blown up or whatever but so yeah. uh so let's just let's just jump ahead because i think this is uh the fourth robbery or whatever is where everything starts going to shit but um basically all we've sort of basically what's kind of happens with third and fourth one is i think they get a little bit i don't want to say cocky but they, they just robbed three they're going for four, and once they get the fourth one, they'll be done, and they, um, they're they hopeful that they can get out of this mess or whatever. And then the two cops, though, at least have an in, like an idea of what's going to happen. Like I said, they're scouting out one bank. Even though they don't actually rob that bank, they still know that they're going to try to hit one of these other branches of this specific bank. All right, so the fourth robbery... Um, they want to go to a smaller location, right? Because that's their whole MO is they want to go to these small little banks with only like a limited amount of employees in small towns with a little limited amount of customers. That way, less people to deal with, less chances of getting caught, less chances of something unexpected happening when you decrease the number of people, whatever. But they go to the bank that they want to go to and it's like out of business. It's closed. It's locked. It's sort of no longer... What, what he was it, like, I, it wasn't like closed for the day. I think it was because if it was closed for the day, I think they would have just broken in and tried to steal cash. I think it was like closed permanently, like there was nothing in there. 
Yeah. <laughs> all right. So then they have to change plans. And this, I feel like this is always in movies where everything's going right and then always just kind of gets fucked up. Is <laughs> so they have to change and they decide, well, well, fuck it. We're going to this bank. Uh, <laughs> they go to the one that's like in a bigger city. So therefore, there's it's a bigger city. It's a bigger bank. There's more people involved. Um, there's more or people uh, just to deal with when they when they try to rob it. And I think they just sort of get a little bit out of their comfort zone because uh, it's hard to handle that many people in a bank. Like like you, you, you it's just two guys with two, one gun apiece. I mean, the numbers are against you when you try to rob a bank with about 50 people in it. And uh, as the movie, I mean, it is a, they, they let you know that it's a very uh, Texas movie. And like you're saying, conceal and carry, I think, I don't know the numbers, but I'm going to imagine that <laughs> Texas Midlands Bank had about a 95% conceal carry rate with their <laughs> population. Yeah, um, not just like Texas, even though that's like obviously associated with the most gun favoring state, maybe in the whole United States, maybe, but not just, but rural Texas, which has to be an even higher population that has concealed and carry, I'd imagine. Rather, it's because this isn't like a big city, Texas, where you have, you know, city slickers that are just probably not in holding guns. We're talking about people that like, you know, own cattle, own ranches always have to have guns they're shooting coyotes they're shooting people on their property trying to steal everything this is like you got to have a gun to uh protect yourself in this rural dangerous environment <laughs> i don't know about dangerous but you know you know what i'm getting at like uh, it is it is i wouldn't say like the guns are necessary but it's also like there's a reason to have one in rural texas where there's not really maybe a reason as much to have one in the city yeah i think i think in that second robbery where you know you said that Toby or Chris Pine makes, you know, the error and not noticing the guy having a gun. Uh, Tanner asked the guy, he's like, you got a gun? And, and the guy's, you know, an older cowboy. And he's like, damn right I do. <laughs> damn straight I do. I think he says that. Or maybe I just thought. No, no, he, de no, he definitely has like a little like comeback. And I also just enjoyed that guy's sort of calm demeanor he was just like god damn it like it's almost like he was almost like this shit again like it happens all the time sort of thing like not getting like bank robbed but just like people holding them up or something like that it just seems like it was almost like a wild wild west situation where he's like god damn it i should have known these assholes were coming i could have dealt with it in a better way yeah it seemed <laughs> just you know a little inconvenienced yeah for the day. i also like i mean like i don't know if you would have to like pay for the damage he did but as soon as they started running out that guy grabbed his gun and just started lighting it up like he definitely did at least like a thousand dollars worth of damage shooting through all that glass and breaking the door and all that stuff so i mean i don't know if he's, he's probably an honorary ranger in whatever <laughs> county that is i'm gonna guess it's in lubbock my granddad was a volunteer police officer. I don't know like what type of insurance you get for that, but like it was like a retirement job. Basically, just rode around the car and sort of walked around grocery stores to make sure people weren't stealing any like potatoes or something, stuffing them in their jacket and stuff. So. <laughs> I mean, no, and, and that's for real. Like, he, like he just he always like he was, and he was like super proud of it too. Like they gave him like he and his partner were just like these two like seventy five year old men that sort of just like 
kind of they didn't like have guns or anything but they had like uniforms and badges and it was like a real ceremony like we now like like a real cop like commissioner Where gave him was like this? this was in montgomery like he like wow and so like i'm sure they paid for they didn't like give him any money but you know he had like an actual like volunteer cop car and like a real suit i don't i think in like he was like the partner and i think to like a retired former cop if that makes sense so it's like one person knew what they were doing and the other person was just sort of filling his time because he was retired you know like my granddad was that person but he was just sort of hanging out doing old man cop stuff like, <laughs> like i said i think they like went around to like grocery stores and kind of just like walked around to make sure people weren't stuffing their shirts and stuff with candy and trying to walk out with it and stuff like that <laughs> well i was ready to cop down how embarrassing would it be to be like caught by a 75 year old cop who's just like let me see your pockets man let me see your pockets <laughs> but i also bet he would have been like all right this one's on the house now <laughs> he, he doesn't seem like that i'm just guessing yeah no he wouldn't go like break out the billy club and beat somebody <laughs> up which would be terrifying i feel like if you had like well how embarrassing would that be even too to get beat up by two old cops or like get like if you like tried to run away and then like an old cop caught you or like they outsmarted you or something like that that would just be awful like you had to like go back to your friends or like oh man you got caught and it's like yeah those police there's something's like no man it was like an 80 year old and like his 80 year old friend and like <laughs> two knee replacements and he still caught up to me and beat my ass <laughs> Ron Bowman don't know nothing about that. Yeah. Um, no, I've never gotten beat up by a cop either. Um, <laughs> all right. So this is where this we'll, we'll get back to this. Where obviously where all the shit goes down is they're on that fourth bank robbery, and they go to a bigger city, a bigger bank. They can't handle the crowd, um, but and they try to get in and out as quickly as possible. But there's just too many people to manage for uh, two people. And um, this is when not only do they get out of their comfort zone of stealing, stealing banks from uh, stealing from smaller banks. Uh, Tanner actually kills, I think, two people. Like he kills security guard and someone else. Right. So now they're on the hook not only for stealing money, they're also using, uh, you know, they're facing a murder charge. And uh, Chris Pine gets shot. That's right. He gets shot too. So. Uh, <laughs> But this is so this is where it all goes down, though, because this is where everything's starting to come together. Uh, this is where they know for a fact, like the, they can trace two people. They like there's so many witnesses. They can tell what car they're driving away in. So obviously we're talking about this is where all the people are going to sort of come together. The two cops sort of are on their way there. They're driving away. So like this is where all the meeting of the two stories come together. And uh, we're all sort of, I mean, most of the, the big time action happens. So anyways, you're, you're right. Chris Pine's character gets shot. And um, it's not a fatal wound, right? Because they make a point to say that it goes in and out. Like, it's not like stuck in one of his organs. It's like a, it's an, it has an exit wound, if that makes sense, right? Yeah. It's like right in his side. So it's not, it's not incredibly, like it definitely needed to be attended later, but it wasn't something that was going to like, kill him in a matter of minutes um but this is where like the <laughs> so they drive away and i felt like this was weird there was like a like a a posse of of locals there that like wanted to try and catch them themselves that, that 
That's Texas vigilante. <laughs> so, I mean, I, would you ever join a posse and try like chase after a bank robber that had a gun, or would you just be like, oh no, no fucking way? But I mean, like, I, I mean, I say, the opposite direction. Yeah. <laughs> so, anyways, there's like a group of, I think seven or eight guys that just like load up in their cars or whatever and and follow these bank robbers like as uh the two brothers as they try to escape and then this was like the weirdest moment to me is when they like pull over and uh he's like all right i gotta get rid of these guys because they're just following us and he whips out his like assault rifle which we probably should allude to earlier there's a bit of foreshadowing that he was sort of bringing this along the whole time and he it was just begging to be used. So he whips out this assault rifle and just starts walking like a badass down the middle of the street, just trying to shoot at all eight of these cars. And they have no idea what's going on. Like, did you, when you saw him doing that, what did you think? Did you think you'd like, I almost thought that was the moment he was absolutely going to get killed. Like, I was like, this guy's a fucking moron. Like, I thought he was saying like, all right, I'm going to, I'm like, I thought he was doing this, like the self-sacrifice right then. <laughs> no, I thought, I thought he was just like making the distraction for his brother to drive away. Like, almost like, fuck it, I'll handle this right now. You go. But that's not what happened. Like, you. <laughs> so I thought it really reminded me. And. I know some of our listeners may disagree with this um, on a very small scale, but it was almost like Walter White pulling the machine gun out. <laughs> I mean, I'm talking on like a Center for Ants scale. To that. <laughs> but yeah, he, you think he's going to be like, all right, like you go ahead, brother, get to the hospital. I'm just going to shoot till the gun runs out of gun bullets. And yeah. Instead, he, he, I looked it up or when I was reading over some plot summaries just to help, you know, my, my, myself with some things I definitely missed. They referred to it as pop shots. Like, Wait, what does that even mean? What, what... Pop shots, like, because all those people all have, like, rifles. Well, he's got yeah. a machine gun. So, you know, they get out with their rifles thinking he's got a rifle. Well, he's got an automatic gun or a, yeah. a pop gun. So, you know, they all have to take cover, and that buys them enough time for them to drop off Chris Pines at that other car. Well, it's not even, well, it's not that they, uh, it buys them time. It scares them off because they, they're yeah. like, fuck it. I'm not dealing with this. I thought it was going to be like one dude with a, like, they probably thought he was going to use the same gun he used to help, like, hold up the bank, like, just a little revolver. So they all, like, stopped like 200 yards away from him. And so they would clearly have the advantage and distance that they had rifles. But all of a sudden he pulls out like an assault rifle and just starts. But he does just start walking down the middle of the street, like almost like Terminator, just like with his hand on it. Like it almost it reminded me a little bit of that uh, Wyatt Earp and Tombstone. Have you seen that where like there's that scene where they're uh, at like the creek or whatever, like the shootout with the cowboy group or whatever. And he just goes, no. <laughs> no, no, like, and he just steps out in the creek and starts shooting stuff, and like nothing ever happens to him. That's what, it, like, this sort of felt like. It was just like there was eight cars, and they all had like rifles, and he's just like, "Fuck it, I'm getting the assault rifle," and just started lighting everything up. And they didn't stick around to even like wait to see if he was out of ammo. They were just like, "Fuck it, we're out of here." <laughs> yeah, but that's what I thought. I thought that was gonna happen. I was like, uh, "He's gonna run out of ammo. He's just shooting like crazy." And then they're just going to sit there hiding behind their cars and then pick him off once he's done. 
but instead they all just get in their cars and drive away. <laughs> uh, that was like one of the only things I felt like was just totally weird and almost unnecessary. I mean, it kind of made a cool scene, but at the same time, it was like, we don't, they shouldn't even have the posse in the first part. Like it just didn't make too much sense, but they just, I think they just wanted a scene where he got to like grab an assault rifle and go to town. Yeah. I, I, I agree with that. Besides that, though, I would say the movie does a good job of not having a lot of filler. Right? Yeah, no, 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 absolutely. There's absolutely not. I couldn't even think of any. That like, was the only thing I could say was maybe like a wasted. But it, like if, if there's a filler moment and it's a dude having an assault rifle and going after people, then I can handle that. But if it's like a filler moment that's completely boring, then that's unnecessary. But like this, this was fine. I just thought it was sort of funny. Of, like yeah. it almost it almost like we were like dealing with this like really kind of gritty realism until this moment where this dude just steps out in the middle of the highway with 10 people trying to shoot at him and he's still like not only does he like win but he like they all just drive away scared <laughs> yeah um yeah i think they just thought he had a pistol or something they didn't know he had that hand cannon all right so you're right so after that he gets rid of the posse they all pussy it. Okay, we'll get back to this, but uh, they all leave, and then um, he, he they stop at the uh, the other car because he wants to let his brother get away, and he's going to cause a distraction. So it was like uh, there is like that. So it's it clearly is like a moment of self sacrifice. He's like, you know what? I think he realized before he even got doing this job. I think he realized he's going back to jail or going to die. And so this is, I think this was like his little redemptive story. He's letting his brother get away scot-free. He's going to take all the credit for it and cause a huge distraction and like have all the cops come to him. He's just like, you go, you take the clean car that no one knows was a part of this. You get out of here, go to the casino, make the money, you know, clean and uh, buy the property back or, you know, pay off the last bit of the debt. I'm going to go handle this. And this was like... <laughs> This, I mean, I felt like this was one of the most badass moments of the whole movie was where, so he drives off in his, his Bronco and it's clearly, that's the car that everyone knows is a part of like the, uh, the heist or the crime is cause that's the one everyone could spot. That's the one they did it in. That's the one they got away with. So they know that that's the vehicle that they need to stop. So he drives away in it. The cops are coming. They, they turn around and follow him. He pulls off into like this, like. I guess I won't call it a mountain, but like a giant hill, if that makes sense. And uh, so there's like two, the cop car like following him and he like, he makes like a, like a giant Molotov cocktail while he's driving. Right. So he's going up this hill and he makes this Molotov cocktail with this like gallon of gas. And then he puts the car in neutral, I guess, or does he just turn it off? Neutral. Neutral. And then he rolls out. And so he's got this flaming Molotov cocktail in the car, like in this Bronco, and it just starts rolling at a high speed back down towards all the people that were following him. And it just blows up two cars, whatever. Hey, uh, I thought that was pretty badass. I did I still think it's kind of kind of odd we never saw the gallon of gas, but that's that's fine. Uh, we don't need to have seen that. It's completely I mean it's Texas, dude. Yeah, Everyone's it's Texas. Gallon of gas in their car. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, I mean, it's rural Texas. That. There's not um, there's not gas stations everywhere, so you gotta probably have some provisions in the back of your Bronco just if you ever run out. 
but uh yeah <laughs> m16 i think you probably remember the gallon of gas. <laughs> yeah I, I it does make me wonder yeah i think the gallon of gas was probably obviously for if he ran out of gas but i thought it was just a really really cool quick impromptu thing like oh i got a gallon of gas let me make a muscle <laughs> oh, like, putting it in the car into the gas tank and then rolling it back and by this point, you know, this is when all the marshal, the uh, rangers have, have arrived. So yeah. it's now all the rangers, Texas rangers. <laughs> it made me think he's done that before, which he probably had. But um, so so he does that. He blows up like two cars and probably injures or takes. I don't know if he kills a couple of rangers doing that. I, I don't think so. But he, uh, he at least takes out their vehicle. So at least a couple of them are stuck there. And then he climbs up, he gets the high ground. He's on the top of the, the hill and he starts, he pulls out his like hunting rifle and starts trying to pick off all these people. And this has like, he's like having fun doing it. You can tell this is like what we said earlier, like he gets off on the thrill. Like he's not scared. He doesn't care. Like, I think it's, I, I don't, I, I never got the impression like he was doing it to survive or doing it to like avoid jail. He was just sort of, he just sort of enjoyed the fight, so to speak. Like, I think he knew it was his last rodeo and his last stand, and he just wanted to take out as many people as he could before he got caught. Anyway, so he's up there on that hill, and he um he winds up picking off Jeff Bridges' partner, partner, Alberto. Alberto? Alberto. Uh, gets a, and he gets just a straight bullet right under the eye. And it's, you know... Listen, I've never seen somebody get shot, and I hope I never see somebody get shot, so I can't speak of this in context, but, like, it just seemed so, like, it, it seems so real and so, like, as far as gun violence goes in films, it just, the way he just sort of collapsed and sort of, it was sort of quiet, but it's it wasn't like a huge gun splatter. You just saw, like, a bullet hole and, like, a little bit of blood, but just the way they filmed it and the way they sort of acted it out and portrayed it made it, only, it just... It felt way more real than most other like gun deaths I've seen on in movies. So it almost like resonated more. But I can like also, I said it they did a good job of not like mostly, you know, there's like a little bit of a gunfight and then it happens like they made it very realistic. Like he gets hit with probably like the second shot. Like yeah. it's very quick. It's not like drawn out. And that just kind of adds to then uh you know, Jeff Bridges then uses the uh, locals' knowledge of the... Uh, well, that's the thing. This is a question I wanted to ask you. So, uh, clearly, when when the guy's up there at first, it's just the cops that he's dealing with. And then all of a sudden, um, <laughs> it's, it, it's Jeff Bridges or whatever. Like, these locals come up. Are they the same locals that pussied out when he... That, that we were just talking about that ran away when he had that M16? Or is it a different band of locals that sort of arrived? I think this was the local volunteer ranger unit. So probably <laughs> someone like your granddad. This guy ha came with a little more um, pack punch and power. And he knew the lay of the land. And I think he served in Nam. Yeah. That, that's what I got based off that brief interaction with that character yeah he was also like more than willing to sort of join in on the gunfight like he was just like looking for an excuse to start firing bullets himself yeah. he's, like, oh, he's like i'll fucking do it i'll do it and he's like no just get me there and i'm gonna do it yeah yeah he's like let, let me take the shot or something yeah <laughs> um 
All right. So that's that's sort of just almost the end. Uh, Jeff Bridges gets this local guy to sort of drive him around the mountain to where Tanner's at. So like he, Tanner's not suspecting it. So he drives behind him. They get like a high point. They get a clean shot, and they just take him out completely. And that's almost it's not the end of the movie, but sort of that's the end of that time period. So we're going um, the next scene. I think is they cut to probably weeks or months later or something like that. And Jeff Bridges is already retired and he comes into the office. I guess, I don't know why he's still coming into the office. Maybe he's just sort of bored because he's retired or whatever. And uh, he kind of wants like an update on the case. And what we learn is that uh, the case is closed. Chris Pine's character, Toby is no longer a suspect because um, he paid off, you know, he paid off the loan and it, like he's starting to earn a shit ton of money off of the well, not him, but his he he his kids or his his kids own the property technically or whatever. So he's not even earning the money, but um, they're making a ton of money off of the oil, or whatever. And since he got that bank to manage the trust, the bank's not even cooperating with um, the cops anymore because they don't want to do anything to ruin a a good situation with that family. So he's basically just off scot-free. Yeah. Like he's going to make like 50,000 or his kids will make $50,000 a month. Um, Cause Chevron found wells. So yeah. They're like, you know, why would he steal $40,000? Yeah, exactly. They're like, why would he steal money? He's got no priors. The only time he's ever been in court was with his divorce with his wife. Like he's never gotten arrested. He's never done anything. Never even had a speeding ticket. They're like, there's no reason to keep investigating him. And even when we tried to sort of find a little bit more information because like through the banks, because they were robbing those banks, uh, he, he made the wise decision to actually have the trust, them manage the trust. So now the banks, even if they suspect that he he was robbing them to pay off the loan, they still don't want it. They don't care because they're getting to manage a ton of money. So they make like, that money back. Yeah. Yeah. Like whatever. So this is the end of the movie here. So he's kind of a little frustrated that uh, he did all this police work. He knew what he was doing, and he found the right guys, but only one person, you know, got justice, so to speak. And he, uh, I think it's a little bit about justice. It might be a little personal. I think, obviously, it's personal because his partner wound up dying. I think we realized that he, even though he was jabbing with them and making sort of some stupid jokes or whatever he ultimately really cared about him and ultimately wanted the best for him and his family so he does want a little justice for his partner and he goes and visits chris pine at the property and they have a little bit of a showdown what do you think about those last the final scene with those last words well they yeah they have a little mexican standoff <laughs> but um basically he's like i know you did it but why he can't figure it out and then the kids show up and you know Jeff, then Jeff Bridges learns that he doesn't live there that Chris Pine's not even living there that you know basically he's he did all that for his money. kids yeah so but and then Chris Pines even says well you know maybe we'll meet later and you can have your resolve it's almost like <laughs> you're left wondering if they're gonna go meet up to have like a 15 pace duel you know uh, what do you do? You think they That's did? I, I mean, it is, it is I unresolved. Up, I think they end up having a duel. You do? Chris Pine dies. Yeah. Chris Pine dies. Yep. 
then that would mean Jeff Bridges probably goes to prison. No. They'd probably do it in Mexico. <laughs> well, because they make a point because, uh, you know, when he, when Jeff Bridges starts walking on the property or whatever, he was like, you're within your rights to shoot me, uh, even though I guess it's not even technically Chris Pine's property. And he didn't know that at the time. But, like, Chris Pine's character does say at the end, like you were talking about, he's like, he says, I got a little house in town if you want to come resolve this or whatever. So, again, he would be back kind of on... Chris is almost like a little mind game. He's like, yeah, why don't you come on my property? So if I kill you, it's within my rights to do it. Like you're trespassing. Uh, or something. <laughs> yeah. I, and I mean, I, I kind of feel like I think Chris Pine just gives it, gives it to him. He, he, he's very much a selfless character in the movie. Yeah, absolutely. Well, even, um, even in that last scene, like it's, it's all sort of like subtext or whatever, where they're talking about, like if you if we all read it out here you could like sort of examine it and where it's almost like chris pine was admitting to doing it and jeff bridges was acknowledging that he knew he did it but like one of his lines is oh the things we do for our kids what jeff bridges said and clearly i mean he's talking about yeah you did something illegal and unethical but you did it for the benefit of your kids so they can have a good life but what i wanted to ask you about this question was do, do do we ever know that uh, anything about Jeff Bridges' backstory? Like, does he have kids? Does, is he married? Or is he just like an old bachelor? Or is he, like, I almost think he's divorced and maybe has kids. And maybe he's like, maybe he almost sees like himself in Chris Pine, like as in like a uh, divorced with kids and doesn't get to talk to him enough. And maybe he sees like he's trying to, Chris Pine's trying to rectify that. And they, maybe Jeff Bridges never did or something like that. They, they don't say a single word. There's no much of it all that in the movie. That, exactly. That's what I thought was weird too, because you don't even see like a wedding ring. Like usually when like you see like cops or they'll like make like one like little shot at his hands that, that they'll show like he's married or something like that, like just like a band on his finger. But like I don't I didn't get that impression one bit. <laughs> so I thought it was like a weird line when he said the things we do for our kids, as in implying that he had some of his own. Yeah, it does seem like that. And that is, a, I, I, I didn't notice that until you pointed that out. But, you know, they don't imply it at all until I guess they say that, until he says that. But that, that's a very interesting thing. Because he's definitely like, I mean, him and Alberto are like sleeping, you know, out on the road at these little motels. Like they're, you know, they're real rangers working eight days a week. And I mean, I think he, Alberto's married because they talk about that. Right? Well, that's what he that's what he says when he's in that final confrontation is that he's like oh, he's, he accuses accuses him of like killing his partner. He goes, "I had nothing to do with killing your partner." And he was like, "It's not you specifically. It's the whole it's the whole involvement, the whole plan, or whatever is what got him killed, not just your brother that killed him." He's like, "The whole idea is is what led us down the path to him dying." And then he says, like, and he had tons of kids in the family or something like that. So all right, so that's basically the end of the movie there is where we're left on a cliffhanger where Chris Pine and uh, Jeff Bridges, we don't know for certain if they're going to meet up and sort of, you know, wag dicks at each other and shoot each other in the face or not. But there is the implication that they could, and we definitely know it's unresolved. So hopefully there's a sequel where... <laughs> 
we learn who's king of the mountain or who's king of this really small town in Texas or whatever. But let's get to um, grading this. Remember, so uh, Rod Budman, this is your first grade, and we have our first grade together, whatever. So um, you, I don't know if you want to set something too high. I'm just giving you some advice. I don't know if you want to go 99 or because that means that uh, if you find something better, then you got nowhere else to go. So you got to give a little baseline. So yeah, absolutely. So absolutely. Rating one out of hundred. Ron Budman gives Heller High Water a ninety-one point four. Ninety-one point four. It's very specific. Uh, <laughs> I really like that. That means like there's never going to be a tie with you. You've got all the decimals and everything. You're going very, very three digits. Um, I myself, I really, really like this movie, and I think we talked about it before. What I liked about it is there was no wasted moments in this movie. Every single moment sort of mattered towards the plot and building towards something different, which I think is great. I don't like wasting time in movies unless it's sort of for some artistic purpose with like cool photography or something that's like really neat or funny. Um, but this movie had it was so streamlined and so well done. I'm gonna I'm gonna do prices right and jumpy, Robert. I mean, uh, Rod. I'm gonna go. <laughs> I'm gonna go 91.5. <laughs> well, you win the showcase. Yeah. <laughs> so Drew Carey's now giving me a hundred dollars. I gotta reach into his nasty ass pocket and grab it myself. <laughs> Bob Barker's. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Is there, does Drew Carey do that? I don't even know if he does that. I I, mean, I I used to remember staying home sick from school and making sure I always watched Prices Right, and that was uh Bob. Is it Bob Barker? It was Rod Barker. Bob Bob Barker. Bob Barker, man. That yeah. Guy's got a nice quaff. The nice ultimate pimp who just was sort of like the. <laughs> I won't say accessible is the wrong word, acceptable sort of Hugh Hefner, because he basically had his own, you know, he had his own little Prices Right mansion where he had all those Prices Right models hanging out all the time, just like Hugh does with the Playboy mansion. Like, do you dream this? You fantasize that he does that, or that's another thing? I'm not fantasizing about it, Robert. I'm just assuming he did. Well, I mean, the way he asked the girl to spin the wheel, you know, like. Well, that's what I was saying. He made like women reach into his pocket for the hundred dollar bills, <laughs> he was asking them to find a little something in there. And I'm not talking about Werther's originals. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was more of a supermarket sweep kind of guy. I mean, that's a great show too. I'm surprised they haven't rebooted that and brought that back. But, uh, it was awesome. It was just like you got to go buy all the groceries you wanted for free. Well, and like it was, it was like a kid when like you didn't know what money was or <laughs> or like how it affected you and like your budget. It was just like, why don't you grab like twenty hams and be done? <laughs> <laughs> like I think I went like my whole life until like I had to pay for groceries, being like, man, ham is really fucking expensive. All right, so we just gave our scores. I I gave a ninety one point five. I wanted to one up mr budman here but so for the next episode if you're still listening we're going to do another movie on netflix because this is going to be sort of the theme of the show is that we're going to go through the whole netflix catalog as quickly as possible not as quickly as possible but there's just so much content there and some people don't know what to watch on netflix so we're we're going to be providing the service of telling you what's the good movies to watch and what are the bad movies to watch 
All right, so the next movie is another Rod Budman special because he's been really high on this movie, trying to get people to watch it. And so what we're going to do is we're going to convince you to watch it on with the next show. It's called Bad Batch. Is that what it is, Rod, Mr. Budman? Bad Batch. Bad Batch with Keanu Reeves and what was who, who else? Is Jim Carrey. Jim Carrey. Not in the movie. He's not in the movie? Those are directors. No, Keanu Reeves is in the movie. I watched the trailer. No, he's not. What? No, he's not. What? Okay. All right. Anyways, it's some <laughs> like dystopian hellscape that's kind of like Mad Max, but also looks like Mad Max. And there's also like a couple raves involved, it looks like. So there's clearly, it's really hot, but they also love to dance. I'm sure it's going to be super fun. Am I, am I telling that right? Or. <laughs> You're exactly right. Okay. All right. So um, stay tuned for Bad Batch. It's on Netflix. I don't think it got too much critical acclaim at all, but apparently it's really, really entertaining, and we're going to have a lot of fun talking about it. I think we're going to have more to say about Bad Batch. Let's take that from the top. <laughs> what do you mean? We got to take that from the top. Jim Carrey is in it, dude. Jim Carrey <laughs> is in it. I know. So let me take it from the top. That's that's one minute, Matthew. Okay. Sorry, right, dude. All right. You you came in with the you you ninety one point five me. Okay, so that's where I, we're at. I'm sorry. So look, so look, I went up, Mr. Budman, um, Rod Budman, on his score. I, I went ninety one point five. He went ninety one point four. Eventually, like we're gonna add all these together and see who's the most generous giver of you know praise for movies. But next week or next Long week or next episode, we'll figure out what time we're gonna do it. But we're doing Bad Batch on Netflix, which. I mean, I'd never heard of until I just uh, talked with my friend here recently. Apparently, it's very, very fun. It's sort of a dystopian future Mad Max meets. Just because what do you want to say? Mad Max meets what? I can do no other They say pretty and pink, but I've never seen that. Okay, so simple pretty and pink. But anyways, it stars Jim Carrey, Keanu Reeves. There's no end to what I do. Starring those two people went so under the radar, Just which means it must you suck so me bad. But we're gonna have a lot of fun watching it and a lot of fun talking about it. Let so the world sure call me And uh, any parting words? But if things are right with me and you, until next time, kid bud. That's all the news I Anything you ask me. How much I love you And after all that I've been through I turn and walk away from you Just because you ask me to Lord, I hope you never do Let the world call me a fool But if things are right with me and you that's all that matters allow you Anything you ask me 